Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 293, Burma, The Ground War Begins. The meticulously planned out Oriental Blitzkrieg was launched against Southeast Asia after the attack on Pearl Harbor. As we have seen on December 14th, Victoria Point at the southern tip of Burma was captured. On Christmas Day, Hong Kong fell. January 2nd saw the capture of Manila in the Philippines. The craw isthmus that connected the Malayan Peninsula with the Asian mainland was in Japanese hands by the third week of January. The Celebes was lost on February 9th. The next day, Borneo fell. Then it was the turn of Sumatra on February 16th. And by the end of the first week of March, Java was all but lost, as was most of the Philippines. But as for the invasion proper of Burma, that had to wait for Malaya and Singapore to be secured, which came about on February 15th when Singapore surrendered. Those Japanese troops that earned this incredible victory now had to deal with some 130,000 POWs of British, Australian, Indian, and local soldiers. Now, it truly was Burma's turn, with its oil and rice, the American supply line to China, and just maybe a passage to India. On the other side, to have any chance of safeguarding Burma, or at least making its defense viable, Churchill knew that Wavell needed more men. So, on February 20th, the British Prime Minister cabled the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, urging, or rather, imploring that the 6th and 7th Australian divisions, currently en route home, be diverted to Rangoon. Yet Curtin's response could not have been unexpected. Simply, he refused, as these men had to come home, not only to save Australia, but, as Curtin said, to preserve it as a base for the development of the war against Japan. And he was not wrong but it was hard for Churchill and the War Cabinet to lose so much territory in such a short time. Yet these dark days were not over. The man expected to defend Burma, Lieutenant General Thomas J. Hutton, he had only been on the job since December 27th, was still, like many others, adjusting to the command changes between the theaters of India, Asia, and Abda Command. And when the Japanese crossed the border, his chessboard at the moment, was thus. The 1st Burma Division was guarding central Burma to cover the routes into the country from the east, from the Mekong Valley, near the Burma-Indochina border, which left Major General John Jackie Smythe's 17th Indian Division to hold the line at the Salween River, located just west of the Burma-Thailand border. To himself, Smythe thought, Hutton was in over his head as a field commander, at least in Burma, 
but the chain of command was to be respected. The British garrison, composed of soldiers of the Burma Rifles at Tavoy, roughly in the middle of the long southern part of Burma, in the Tanasaram area, had retreated to the north as the Japanese approached. They were heading for Molmin, located on the north end of Burma's long southern territory. Molmin is also near the mouth of the Salween River, which would, hopefully, play a vital role in Rangoon's defense. Alas, Molmin would also fall on January 31st as the Japanese approached, and this left the whole of the Tenasserine area open to the invaders. The question was, where would they go next? The Japanese 15th Army, about to head into Burma proper, had been strengthened on January 10th by the addition of the 33rd Division, having come in from China. Now, Lieutenant General Shijiro Iida had 35,500 men. The 33rd Division had also brought armor and troop-carrying vehicles, as far as they were usable at Burma. And Aida had over his head the 5th Air Division, led by Lieutenant General H. Obata of fighters, bombers, light and heavy, and reconnaissance aircraft. These planes were put to work right away, harassing the Allied troops in Burma. Having rested at Momin, those elements there of the Japanese 15th Army moved out on February 9th. Their target was Rangoon, the Burmese capital, just under 200 miles or 321 kilometers away, west by northwest, once they went around the Gulf of Martaban. After that city's capture, the Japanese would head north to take the oil fields there. But first, they had to get through Major General Smythe's 17th Indian Division along the Salween River, again just inside the Burma-Thailand border. However, General Smythe did the initial work for the invaders. Or rather, it would be fair to say that Smythe was doing what he thought was best, although it initially advantaged the enemy and went against what Wavell wanted. Smythe wanted to back up a bit to more open ground behind the Satan River, yet Hutton, in overall command, and getting pressure from Wavell, who was getting pressure from Churchill, wanted every inch of Burma contested. In fact, this argument had already begun to play out back at Momin, when Smythe had been forced to send a battalion to shield that city. The enemy came at the end of January and had no trouble taking the city, and the overmatched battalion barely managed to escape. And this was about to play out again. On February 15th, Smythe ordered a retreat by some 20 miles or 32 kilometers to the northwest to the Berlin River. Smythe had wanted to go further to the Satan River, but Hutton made him stop at the Berlin. The retreat was anything but orderly, as the Japanese engaged the retreating Indians the next day, February 16th. This retreating fight went on for four days, but it must be said that the 48th Indian Brigade, made up of three well-trained pre-war Gurkha battalions, did themselves proud, considering the circumstances. The Indians would move, stop, hold up the invaders, who then made plans to attack, only to have the Indians move out again, as the Japanese were readying themselves. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. 
At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. The Berlin River was reached, and the 17th Indian Division began to set themselves up. But Smythe could see right away that the shallow river would not be the barrier he had hoped for. Besides which, the more numerous enemy troops were already pushing hard on their flanks. It was only a matter of time before the Indians were attacked from the rear. All this was reported by Smythe to Hutton, who finally gave in and allowed a retreat to the Satong River on February 19th. The 17th Division began moving out that night. The path, not road, the Indians used was really just a rough path, which slowed down their trucks and artillery. The bridge they were heading for near Mokpalan, the only one in the area, was an 11-span bridge built for the railway that connected Molmin with Pegu, which was located in between the bridge and Rangoon. As the Indians moved out, they found themselves harassed by the Japanese, who had all but perfected a technique. Relatively small squads would be stripped down, only carrying water, machine guns, and mortar. They would run through the jungle to either side of the retreating Indians to get in between the four brigades and set up roadblocks. Then they would wait, and when come upon by the men of the 17th Division, the Japanese squads would stay put and fight until they were all dead. As the Indians fought against these roadblocks, their advancement was stalled, which allowed the main body of the Japanese troops to catch up with them. This required the Indians to fight the main enemy body enough to keep them at bay while the roadblocks were destroyed, which took time, hours most times. Then they would retreat again until this series of events repeated itself. The Japanese lost relatively few men to hold up the enemy so that the main body could come in and kill or wound as many of the defenders as possible. For those Indian troops wounded, they had to be transported, which caused more delays. In between fighting the roadblocks, as the Japanese would then generally be at a safe distance, their air arm would come in to strafe and bomb those retreating. It was hell for the 17th Division, and this went on for days. Finally, during the night of February 21st, 22nd, the 1st of the 17th Division began to cross over the Satan Bridge, located about 75 miles or 120 kilometers northeast of Rangoon. Knowing the bridge had to be destroyed after the four brigades of the 17th Division were across, additional troops and sappers had been sent out from Rangoon. They straightaway set up charges along the bridge and waited. While this was underway, some of those troops fanned out and destroyed all the ferries and sandpans they could find. The idea, again, was to gain time, to allow more troops to reach Burma, so that a strong defensive line could be created. 
As the sun rose on February 22nd, two Japanese regiments attacked the Indian troops, waiting their turn to cross. As the crossing was over a rail line over the river, planks had been put down to increase the surface area. Still, it was slow going. Relatively speaking, it was fortunate that the bulk of the 17th Division was still on the eastern side of the Satan River, as this allowed them to hold off the Japanese regiments, who were trying to take control of the causeway. The fighting here went on all that day of February 22nd, but the Indians were determined to preserve their route to safety. But even before the sun came up the next day, February 23rd, the Japanese were back. And this time there were fewer defending troops, as many had crossed over during the night. Still, two-thirds of the Indians were on the eastern side. By now, the bulk of the Japanese invasion force was hard upon the bridge. Hence, more numbers were thrown in. As the minutes went by during this pre-dawn combat, the Japanese soldiers crept over more and more dead British troops as they approached the bridge's entrance. Just before 5.30 a.m., Brigadier Noel Hugh Jones, commander of the 48th Gurkha Brigade, informed Smythe that he could probably hold the bridge for another hour. But that was it. Smythe reacted by giving the word to blow up the causeway, which was done at 5.30 a.m. In his defense, he did believe that the majority of their troops had already crossed over. Now, this decision was a military necessity, but it meant that not only was the majority of the 17th Division still on the same side as the enemy, now both trapped on the eastern side, but the division's heavy weapons and supplies were with them. Hugh Jones, Smythe, and Hutton, when he was updated, could only imagine the carnage that was about to overtake their Indian troops. The trapped Indians began to imagine what was coming as well, so started destroying their equipment and supplies. To deny the enemy the crossing was one thing, but there was no reason to give up precious supplies and weapons, the very things they would need to march on Rangoon, once a way past the Satan was found. Yet, incredibly, the Japanese, more or less, disengaged. The Indians stood there, dumbfounded, but grateful. They had already hardened themselves to fight until they were all dead, or that their ammunition ran out, which was the same thing, for little mercy was expected. Some of the men of the 17th then panicked and ran into the jungle, only to be captured by the Japanese, who had not left the area. Others stripped down, ignoring orders, and found logs to try to cross the 600-yard-wide, fast-moving river. The majority of them drowned, as they could not swim, or were killed by Japanese rifles. For the invaders, their priority remained the same, to find a way across the Satan. Maps were looked over, and scouts were sent out. As for the trapped Allied troops, they were mostly ignored as the Gurkhas probably did not know the area very well and seemed content to sit and wait to see what the invaders would do. The Battle of the Satan River was another unmitigated disaster for the British in a long line of humiliating defeats. 
Of the roughly 8,500 men of the 17th Indian Division, only about 3,500 of them had crossed over, and only about 1,400 of those still had their rifles. Such was their haste to retreat. Those safe on the western side began their more sedate march to Pegu, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers to the southwest. They would be rearmed and reorganized. The Battle of Burma wasn't over yet. As for the 5,000 men trapped on the eastern side, they were out of the fighting. Now their focus was survival, and the majority of the Burmese would not be inclined to help them. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. As for the Burma Command, good and bad changes were underway. What was left of the 17th Indian Division at Pegu, located halfway between the Satan and Rangoon, was joined by the 7th Armored Brigade. Commanded by Brigadier J. H. Anstice, he had with him about 150 steward or honey light tanks. True, they only had two-pounder guns and thin armor, but these men had fought in the Western Theater of North Africa, thus had experience. Further, the 63rd Indian Brigade and three British battalions had just arrived in Rangoon. Additionally, the 1st Burma Division was relieved in the Shan States to the north by the Chinese 6th Army. It seemed that Wavell did indeed need Chiang Kai-shek's help. The 1st Burma now moved into a position north of Pegu should the Japanese attempt a flanking maneuver and the Chinese 5th Army was marching to Tonggu, further to the north of the now-collapsed bridge, to cover that area. Of course, during all this, the Japanese were also busy, bringing up reinforcements, supplies, and ferrying equipment. The 15th Army would begin to cross the Satan on March 2nd, and when across, as they were unopposed, they would make good time in reaching the Pegu area. Getting back to Burma's command structure, that was altered when Brigadier Smythe, the commander of the 17th, was sent back to India on medical orders. Not that it would have helped Smythe, but being defeated by Japanese troops had become the new normal in Asia. He was only one of many. His replacement was Brigadier David Punch Cowan, a staff officer of Wavell's, and he would be with the 17th Division for the remainder of the Burma campaign. And there would be other changes. General Hutton would be replaced on March 5th by General Sir Harold Alexander, a long-serving aristocrat officer. Of course, his physical entry into Rangoon would be anything but propitious. To further demonstrate the Allies' dark days, when Alexander took over, that was almost the same time as Wavell's Abda command coming to an end as most of the territory he was to protect was under Japanese control. 
When the 7th Armored Brigade was joined by what remained of the 17th Indian Division, they were ordered to head east, just north of Pegu, which was in between the collapsed bridge and Rangoon. This movement would guarantee a clash with the Japanese who were moving in to this direction. This coming limited offensive was one of General Alexander's first orders, again at the behest of Wavell and Churchill. Coming upon the village of Peyangi on March 3rd, the B Squadron of the 7th Hussars of this British combined force found that the Japanese were already in possession of the town. As the British-led troops moved forward, they were about to attempt an illusion worthy of Houdini himself. First, the infantry went in to get an idea of the enemy's positions. As the Japanese infantry responded to this aggression, a few of the Stuart light tanks then rushed forward to inflict casualties. Again, the tank crews were experienced and had learned a few tricks in North Africa. This caused a few of the Japanese Type 95 Ha-Go tanks to move forward, but right away two of them were taken out. Now a more general engagement commenced, which saw the Japanese lose two more tanks, with a fifth having to be abandoned by its crew. The Japanese backed off as they not only lost several tanks within minutes, but the British infantry renewed in spirit, had managed to grab a few of their anti-tank guns in the confusion. This allowed the British and Indian troops to move a few miles further east to Legu. Again, they found that the town was already in Japanese hands. But this time, having been forewarned by retreating troops from Payagi, a roadblock was set up. But keeping with their overall deceptive plan, the British went right in as if they had the larger force. Using the honey light tanks effectively, the Japanese were harassed and only managed to take out one enemy tank with several Molotov cocktails. Still, the roadblock was smashed and the Japanese retreated. Now, these two engagements were powerful blows against the oncoming Japanese, and one could be forgiven if these two clashes led the invaders to think that Rangoon was being aggressively defended, for that's exactly what General Alexander was hoping for. The truth was he had already decided to abandon the Burmese capital, which had first been decided by Hutton. Assessing the situation, both men knew it was only a matter of time before the Japanese 15th Army broke through their line of inadequately trained men. Further, Rangoon was already open to a seaborne attack as the enemy controlled the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean. No, it was decided to abandon the capital and head north some 200 miles to Prome along the Irrawaddy River. Indeed, when Alexander first arrived in Rangoon on March 5th, a Japanese division almost captured him as they were about to enter the city. But then the divisional commander stuck to his orders of circling around the city to the north so he could attack it from the west when ordered to do so. Had he come in, there was nothing that could have protected Burma's new commander. But the story doesn't end there. 
As the Japanese division was swinging north, they set up roadblocks to the north of Rangoon so no enemy forces could exit the city and attack them in the rear. The British garrison and Alexander himself were trapped. Several attacks were made against these barriers to punch a hole, at least for the garrison to escape, but they all failed. And this with overwhelming enemy forces coming in from the east. But as the Japanese division reached the west side of the capital, the roadblocks were removed. Alexander and his garrison retreated to the north, the last of their troops departing Rangoon on March 8th. That same day, the Japanese 15th Army took possession of Burma's capital, burning and laid to waste as it was. This was done by the retreating troops to deny the Japanese the port city's facilities. Another speedy, embarrassing defeat, another escape measured by a razor's edge. During the rest of March, both sides sent in reinforcements, for north of Rangoon was the needed oil fields that fed the Japanese military machine. But the worst was not over for Alexander and his men. Yes, they had bombed the port facilities and the city's electrical capacity, but the Japanese were ready for this. Within days, their engineers would have the port up and running. In fact, the 18th and 56th Divisions were soon shipped in, along with two tank regiments and one additional infantry regiment, more than doubling the size of the 15th Army. The rest of the city could be worked on later. In regards to air power, the Japanese 5th Air Division was brought up to 420 aircraft. The best the Allies could do was only 150 planes. By the end of March, the Japanese would control the skies over Burma. As for the British, their traveling from Burma to India, or the other way around, had always been done by sea. That was far cheaper and faster than building roads which meant that Alexander and his men had no access to supplies as they retreated, except those dropped from airplanes. As for Chiang Kai-shek, his supply line was now down. Oh, the Burma Road was still open, but the receiving end at Rangoon was now out of the picture. What was needed was fresh blood, fighters, men who could take body blows and not give up, not let their men give up, and that fresh blood flowed in the veins of British General William Slim and American General Joseph Stilwell, who were coming to the campaign. But first, a series of more defeats had to play itself out as the Allies would continue to retreat for just over 1,000 miles, as the enemy stayed on their heels. The Allied forces would end their run all but trapped in Northeast Burma. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. I just want to say hi and thanks to a couple of people. Um, The following people made a donation. Gino S. from Vancouver, Canada, who was looking up information on a friend's uncle, John Donald Beaton, who was a dispatch rider for the Royal Canadian Signal Corps, captured when Hong Kong fell. Welcome aboard, Gino. Thank you very much. Colton G., Uh, I'd like to thank Blake M. 
and then Steve M., who wants to help out with research. <laughs> yeah, you can help me. Um, as you could probably tell, things take a little longer with the Asian theater because that's not my strong suit. So basically what I need, Steve, if you wanted to help, is a detailed timeline that I can go through and make sure I don't miss any of the major events, and that will allow me to dig deeper from there. If you could send me anything like that, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, another donation came from Anders. I'm not sure where you're from, but yes, the um, money was used for alcohol, I'm afraid. Uh, Aiden M. also donated, and finally, a Ray S. donated. Uh, cool name. As far as new members, there's Dale O. from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Welcome aboard. Wick S. from Ashland, Kentucky, and Caleb P. from Fairfax Station, Virginia. Hello, neighbor. Caleb, please be careful, as I understand the COVID is quite intense in Northern Virginia and around that area. I would also like to say hi to a Patrick from Victoria, Australia, who wrote to me that the Aussie militia were often called Chacos by the Australian Imperial Forces uh, because their belief was that they would melt in the heat of battle, so I'll try to remember that. Uh, then there's Brian Y. from San Francisco, California, who wrote me a very nice email. He liked the Pearl Harbor episode, and when I mentioned that the bomber, the U.S. bomber, had landed on the golf course at Kahuku, he had interviewed a veteran who actually was there, an Emery Nakashima who worked with the Military Intelligence Service, and it seems that Emery was on the golf course at the time with a friend, James Supi Ura, watching the attack. He had two uncles that served in the war, Tom Y., who was drafted in February of 42. He became a medic and won the Silver Star in Italy, and the other uncle was Fred K., who worked in the military intelligence during the occupation of Japan, as he was drafted out of the Topaz concentration camp. As can be expected, he had a bit of a, an attitude. I can't blame him. There's also Bo P. from Mississippi. Um, no, I have not been to the Air Force Armament Museum in Fort Walton Beach. I'd love to go there one day. Hopefully COVID will go away or whatever because there's a lot of places I would like to see. And please, Bo, yes, send pics. That would be amazing. And I would like to say hi as well to Vincent B. in Cork, Ireland. Sorry for the volume issues of the earlier episodes. I will have Paul, my tech guru, look into that, see what we can do. So thank you for everyone who's become a member, who's donated, who has written, offering advice, uh, everything. I really do appreciate it, especially in these times since we really haven't left the house since, what, March? Something like that. So it's nice to know that there are people still out there. So please write to me anytime you want wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And um, the last thing I want to say, of course, is if you could please leave a review uh, rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this, that would be great. It just helps me uh, keep this going on and keep it as a job so I don't have to go out and really work and actually buy a belt and maybe a decent pair of shoes. So I will put out the next episode very soon to make up for the three-week gap that, um, that just happened. But as always, be safe, everyone. Take care, and I will see you as soon as I can. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.